This is second in the series called Engaged in Battle. And uh, the more I've, I've sort of focused on this and the more I've uh, really dug into God on this, the more I realize that, you know, we're destined to win. We're destined to win. And the reason that sometimes it doesn't look like we're winning or the enemy wins is we don't do the right things and we don't do them consistently. That doesn't mean that we're perfect, but there are things that we can do that give us the ability to have a victory instead of a defeat. Because we're not meant to be defeated by the enemy. Because Jesus has already defeated him totally. And so we're meant to be believers who carry that victory into the world and into our own lives and see it come to pass. You know, um, just while, while I'm thinking about this, uh, one of the great things I love about being a pastor, so I've gone off script already, one of the things I love about being a pastor and, and a pastor of this church is that I get to know everybody. Like, I know, I know everybody's names, unless you're new this morning. I'll know, I know your name. I get to talk to you, and I get to help you. And that's a real privilege. And it's amazing to, for me to see the, the difference in people's lives year on year. So, you know, Flick was one of our students. She was, uh, she was with us for four years in Cambridge. And just like... Is gone, grown, matured, got an amazing husband, and and then comes back. How cool is that? And uh, I'm really, I'm really blessed. I'm really blessed by that. So I'm also really blessed because one of our other students has come for a visit this morning. He wasn't, he wasn't a student with us very long because it took him years to find us because we weren't so good on publicity at that time. But Aldrin, uh, who sat at the back looking very cool and sophisticated. Um, Aldrin, uh, he actually lives in Bury at the, now, Bury St Edmunds, but he has a, he's started it with his friends, his own ministry called Are You Living It? Is that the way you say it? Are You Living It? A music-led, worship-led ministry, and he's doing fantastic stuff. And it's a real privilege to, to see that, to see that, that year on year, God makes a difference in people's lives, isn't it? And, and to, to see that happen, because often when we, we look for the spectacular, we miss the change on a day-to-day -day basis. And we kind of we like the spectacular because it's immediate feedback. But some of the biggest things that God does in people's lives take time. And, and it's a process of growing and winning little victories instead of just like one-off ways. You know, it's, it's that... Um, ways. Ways, yeah, <laughs> Okay, if you knew this morning, I occasionally invent my own words. You just need to know that. But this is, this, is a, this is true. When we were looking at this last week, I put some simple principles. And the first one is this, that you have to know who your enemy is in order to know how to fight when things are going di difficult or things are going wrong. You have to know how your enemy is and you have to know how to, who to, how to win. And what the Bible says is that in this life, our enemy isn't other people. 
It might seem like that, but actually it's the fact that the, the enemy's able to manipulate people and get them to do things that actually hurt each other and mess each other's lives up. And the enemy is Satan. He's behind everything. Now, we can go, well, isn't that all like spiritual fuzzy wuzzy? No, that's actually what the Bible says. It says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, but it is against a very real enemy who works through flesh and blood because we make bad choices. And, and the, when, you, when you multiply that across six billion people, there's a lot of bad choices going on. And, and that's why things get in such a mess. But it's not God, it's an enemy. And it's not, it's not the people, it's just that they've been sold a lie and they're going along with it and they're reacting to each other. And one of the things that we need to understand about the enemy is he wants an outcome, which is to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. He wants to rob from you. He wants to rob your peace. He wants to rob your destiny. He wants to rob your future. He wants to mess up your relationships. He wants to screw up your friendships. And, and if he can, he will. And so when we see that the enemy is at work, our reaction to that is not to do what he wants us to do, which is to, to rise up in anger or offence or bitterness or just get, get one back or mope about or complain. Our reaction to that is to do the exact opposite of what he wants us to do and love. And so whatever situation we're in, because as believers, everything isn't rosy. You know, everything isn't perfect all the time because we have an enemy and we live in a fallen world. And by the way, we make messes of our own lives as well. So everything's not perfect all the time. And so life goes up and down like that. But whether we're up or whether we're down, we have one tactic from God. And it's this, trust God, do good, help people. That's all, we, that's all we, we do, whether we're at the top of a mountain or in the deepest valley. Trust God. Do good, help people. And if we'll do that, the enemy will be beaten. Might not be tomorrow, might not be the day after, but he will be beaten. And so I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 4. I'm going to uh, read from the Amplified, but uh, I guess you, we've all got different translations. But it doesn't, doesn't make a, a whole lot of difference for this particular passage. But Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Sorry, I've sent you to the wrong place. Luke chapter 4. <laughs> I'm on a roll this morning. <laughs> Luke chapter 4. And verse 1. Now Jesus, full of and in perfect communication with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they ended, he was hungry. And I want you to see something here. And what I want you to see is this. It was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into that place. That might not make obvious sense. Why would the Holy Spirit lead you into a place where you're going to be challenged? Well, then you're going to get the answer this morning, Joyce, if you're asking it yesterday. That's good. It might make not obvious sense, but 
this is how things are. That God takes us through things in order that we can have some victories under our belt. God takes us through things in order that we can have some victories under our belt. You see, our destiny or what God has for us might lead the, be the other side of a challenge. It might be the other side of an enemy activity. In fact, it probably is the other side of an enemy activity. What we need to understand is there is no overcoming of the enemy on this earth unless we do it. And as the enemy is so active, then we are going to go into things where we are destined to overcome. And God doesn't give us a life where we avoid anything that's difficult. He doesn't give us a life where everything is simple. He gives us a life because he's equipped us to overcome. He's equipped us to have victory. He's equipped us to go through difficult times and come out the other side of them, able to proclaim his goodness, able to proclaim his victory, and with victories under our belt. You see, I've seen in my life, I've seen God work, and I've seen him bring good out of the most difficult situations. I've seen him take me through Horrible, horrible situations. And the, the outcome of that is I've got a few victories under my belt now. And I'm wiser. And I'm, I'm more um, discerning. And I can, um, I've got more confidence in the love of God. I've got more trust that he's going to bring me through the other side. When you're in the middle of something, it's hard to trust. But when you're in the middle of something, you've gone through stuff before, it gets easier and easier to trust so that you get more and more of overcoming and having the victory on the other side. And I've got more confidence in God now because I've seen God come through. I've got a few victories under my belt. That doesn't mean I enjoyed the process, but I do enjoy the fact that I'm in a different place and a different person than I was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You see, as believers... And I'm talking about what God's word says, not necessarily how we always are. Because what God's word is truth, and our role as believers is to move from here to the level of what he says is possible for us. And we're on that path of moving from where we are, sometimes winning, sometimes losing, to getting to the level of where he says is possible. Now, Jesus walked in perfect faith. But he had a few challenges, didn't he, that he had to overcome. So we learn from him how to overcome, and we learn from our own experience how to overcome. And we, in, on that basis, we don't have to be afraid of hard times. Because as believers, we are anointed for hard. Amen? Amen. We're actually anointed to see, a hard, see difficulties come through and celebrate the goodness of God on the other side. We're anointed for that. The, his blessing, his favour rests on us for us to be able to do that. You see, some people go, well, you know, it's all right for Matt to say that. He's done Bible school and he studies and he's got all those books behind his desk and he reads all these commentaries and he's got his Greek thing on his computer. It's all right for Mark saying that. But what about, what about me? I'm just an ordinary person. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a... The thing about God's kingdom is you are qualified not by the level of degrees that you have, 
You are not qualified by your educational content. You are qualified by virtue of birth and being born into the kingdom. So we're all qualified to have victories. And, it, and it's not about, you know, being highly trained at Bible school or whatever. It's about being qualified by birth. Now, if we go into verse 3, we find that Jesus responds to what the enemy does. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to turn to bread. Jesus replied, it's written and forever remains written, man will not live by bread alone. One of the big tactics of the enemy is to turn around to you and say, who do you think you are? He did it with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not very creative. He doesn't have many tactics, but this is one of his big ones. He'll look at you and go, who do you think you are? What makes you think you can do this? What makes you think you're up to it? Don't you, don't you remember when you messed up there? Don't you remember when you did that? Who do you think you are to challenge me? Well, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm anointed by the King of Kings. I have the Spirit of Christ living in me. I have an eternal inheritance. I carry the authority of the kingdom. I'm named as part of the family of God. That's who I am. So don't you come around telling me who do you think you are. I know who you are. I know who I am and you're losing. That's our attitude. That's our attitude. You see, one of what Jesus does here is he talks back to the enemy. I think one of the, I, I guess one of the, the biggest things that we get challenged about, and one of the, I don't, I don't know whether it's, a, it's something you, you grow into as a Christian or you, you just bring in, but we're not good at opening our mouths and talking back to the enemy. Generally, when we've got an issue, we're good at complaining to God or complaining to each other. But we ain't too hot and doing what God's told us to do, what Jesus did, which is talk back to the enemy. You see, every time that Jesus was challenged, he talked back. And so should we. When the enemy comes up to us and goes, who do you think you are? What makes you think you can come through this? This is too much for you. You can't carry this. You're not going to win. You're not going to have the victory. You're not going to see the goodness of God in this situation. What You know, we come out with this and we say it. Shut up, devil. Shut up, enemy. I know who I am. I know God is good. I know he's for me. And if he's for me, who can be against me? And whatever you throw at me, I'm more than a conqueror. So you need to know this. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. Your victory is going to be comprehensive. So the more you throw out me, the more you fall. Because the bigger you are, the harder you're going to fall because Christ is on my side. We talk back. I know who I am. I know who I am. Enemy, you're not going to run my life. You're not going to push me around anymore. I know what you're up to. I know what you're trying to do. I'm not responding to that stuff that that person's coming out with. I'm not responding to what they're up to. 
I'm not going to let myself be manipulated. I'm not going to let myself be controlled. I'm not going to let myself be messed around because I'm a child of God and that's not how we play this game. You see, that's how we win a victory. We talk back to the enemy. We do the opposite what he wants. We trust God. We do good. And we help people. That's how we come out. That's how we win. Amen? Amen. You're all really quiet. You're all really quiet. We're listening. Well, that's good. It's good you're listening. Some cheering would be good, you know. Like, we're on the winning side. We're not on the losing side. You know, we need, we need to understand that. We're not, we're not beaten down here. We're on the winning side. It's about time as believers we start believing we're on the winning side instead of the enemy getting all the fun. Amen. That's where you cheer. You go, yeah. Go on. You see, if we're not going to do this, we're not going to win. And because we don't do it, we don't win. If we're not going to do these things, we're not going to win. If we won't give the, use the weapons that God's given to us, we won't win. Now, that doesn't mean we don't go up and down. That doesn't mean we, we don't struggle. And it doesn't mean that is, this isn't really. You see, sometimes you can say these things and it becomes like very triumphalistic. And like ordinary people go, I, can, I, can, I can't do that. I'm not into this whole, I, you know, there's this great guy and he can do everything, but I couldn't possibly do it. What we're here is we're on a journey of learning how to come up to the level that God has for us. And, and, and God sees us at all sorts of different levels. But one of the key things we're going to need in that is we're going to need determination to get to the end of the course, even when things look desperate at the other side. Yeah? yeah. So I, I just want to uh, I just want to ask Sarah to come up because what I what I want you to see this morning is that real testimonies aren't always perfect. But they are born out of adversity. And we don't always walk it perfect, but we are learning to walk it better. And there's things we can learn along the way about how we beat the enemy. So I've got a couple of testimonies for this one. The first one is Sarah. Do you want me to hold it for you? That's right. I brought my visual aid. <laughs> so this is Sophie. I was going to bring Charlotte as well, but she's fallen asleep. Um, now... Sophie, for, for those of you that don't know, if, um, well, I'll start at the beginning in a minute, but for those that do know roughly what's happened in the last year with us, this, this is really loud. No, but I'm holding it a long way away. I want to hold it closer. So um, for those that have prayed for us over the last year and joined this journey, I want to just publicly say thank you. And that this little one here is the, the living testimony of the answers to prayer. Um, Sophie, in particular, is the one that we really had to pray for, really. But she's quite heavy, so I brought... 
an assistant. <laughs> so uh, last year sometime, Rob and I had a, a conversation that's one of the most life-changing conversations you can probably have where you decide that we believe it's about the right time to start a family. Um, he'd got his job sorted out, we'd bought a house, um, we felt like all of our ducks were in a row and you know this was this was the right time. Um, and it was the, the 17th of August that we found out that we were going to be parents. Um, we'd had a few unsuccessful months and so to be honest I was losing faith a little bit and uh, I was quite surprised. In fact, I only took a test because uh, I wanted a beer in the fridge. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was not expecting to not get the beer. Um, <laughs> so, you know that starting a family is going to be life-changing. Um, we didn't really realise quite how life-changing it would be. And um, it felt like almost none of the pregnancy went smoothly. Um, so at around about eight weeks um, I started having some bleeding and so on and kept begging Adam Brooks where I was um, being seen to, to check me out and they they weren't overly impressed because it wasn't impressive enough for them to be worried yet um, and when I rang up one of the local midwives um, she assumed that I was being seen at Huntingdon in Hinchinbrook um, and said oh go up there and they'll scan you and, and see if it's okay. Um, so that was what I did. Now, it happened to fall on a day where Rob wasn't allowed to take holiday. They had this big thing in the company. No one can take holiday these two days. So Cheryl came with me. And we went up to Hinchinbrook, and they said, oh, you're not registered with us. I said, no, but I was told to come here. Oh, well, well we can't see you. <laughs> um, so I... I did all I could, I begged and I cried and, and eventually they relented and said, oh, come on, then we'll just make sure you're all right. And I went into that room with Cheryl thinking, very kind of binary, either the baby is okay or the baby is not okay. And this is, o and this, you know, and this is over. Um, what I did not expect <laughs> was for her to say there are two babies. <laughs> not at all, not even slightly. That was at nine weeks, we found out there were two. We you could quite clearly see that they were in the same sack, um, which means that they're definitely identical twins. Um, we then had a bit of a nervous wait until the 12-week scan. I actually had another scan in between that after yet more bleeding. So um, by the time we got to the 12-week scan, that was my third scan. Um, and we had a nervous wait to see if there was a membrane separating the two of them. Because if there isn't, which only happens in about 1% of cases, then they can intertwine and the cords can get tangled and they can kill each other. So we had a really nervous wait to see if there was one and they hadn't spotted one before that. When we got to the 12-week scan, we saw the top sonographer over at Addenbrooke's and praise God, she found this membrane and everything else looked pretty good and we sat back quite content that things were all right now. Um, now, if you have a normal, uncomplicated pregnancy, you have two ultrasounds, one at 12 weeks, one at 20 weeks, and you see the midwife a few times, and then you go and have your baby. 
If you are expecting identical twins like these, um, because they share the placenta and there's all kinds of things that can go wrong because of that, you're automatically seen by a consultant. You're automatically in this really high risk category. And the first time you go and see your consultant, they sit you down and they say, well, I know you didn't choose to have twins, but now you've got all these potential things that could go wrong. Um, thankfully, we had an amazing consultant um, who I'm convinced that God um, put us with. Um, if you have this type of pregnancy, you should expect somewhere in the region of 10 or more ultrasounds through the course of it as opposed to two. I ended up having 30. Um, at 16 weeks, we had our next one. That's when we found out they were girls, which was, um, again, a bit of a miracle because on, on the green family side, it's all boys. We had assumed that we would probably get a boy one at a time. Um, <laughs> And we got two girls in one go. They are the first girls born in the Green family for over 100 years. So they're, they're, they're pretty special and they're, um, they're very well loved by their family. <laughs> yeah, so 16 weeks we went for the scan and um, it was with the normal ultrasound department and the lady doing it said, so one of them looks a bit smaller than the other. We don't know if there's anything to worry about there. But we want, that was, this was a Thursday. They said, we want you to come back Monday for another scan. And I came back, and this time it was up in the, the fetal medicine department. So, you know, you've pretty much been bumped up to the specialist care. And it was our consultant doing it. And I walked in, and she gave me this look. And she went... And she was really trying to suss out how I was feeling. And I didn't really know how I felt, so I kind of mimicked it back at her. <laughs> and... <laughs> And she scanned them, um, and she did a lot of different things, and she would poke and prod at my belly while she was watching the screen, and she clearly knew exactly what she was doing and didn't say a lot during that process, just kept calling out different measurements to the lady writing it on the computer. Um, and again, this was another scan that Rob couldn't come to because he'd come to the one on the Thursday, and he, you, know, you can't just keep taking time off willy-nilly, so Nicola came with me. Um, and at the end of it, the consultant sat us down and said, so you have a, a complication called selective intrauterine growth restriction. I learned a lot of long words. <laughs> um, what that means is that where they share the placenta, they're not sharing it equally. And so little Sophie wasn't getting as much as Charlotte was. Charlotte was quite happily growing away, getting everything she needed, and Sophie was getting a reduced sort of blood supply. Now, from that point on, the consultant kept hold of us, and we were scanned for a while, every week, and towards the end, it, it just kept increasing, and it got to a point where I was being scanned three times a week. Um, she said to us, "You, if her growth slows down and stops, if she stops getting the nutrients that she needs, then she could die. And if she does, because they share these blood vessels through the placenta, there's a high chance that the other one will die with her. Um, because when one dies, the blood pressure drops dramatically and the other one tries to overcompensate and sends for too much over. And so they'll either, they'll either die, they could be severely brain damaged, or there is a chance that they would be okay, but it's not a given. Um, now, a few days before that, I'd been driving on my way to work and I drove 
So we live in Papua. If I'd driven through a really torrential um, thunderstorm, and as I drove through it, it was really very dark, and the rain was really lashing down. And I reached um, where I was going, which was just Campbell, and I was going to the school there where I was teaching, and. Um, pulled into the car park and you, you come back on yourself and come back facing the way that you've just come and I'd come through the other side of the storm and I sat in the car park and I looked back at what I'd just been through and there was a rainbow over it and at the time I felt really quite strongly that was a word from God but I did not want to believe that it was a word for me <laughs> so I sent it to the prayer group thinking that oh, this is going to be for somebody else but um, no I knew deep down that God was giving me this because I was going to need it that I was going to need to know that I was going to one day sit on the other side of this storm, having passed through it, and I was going to see that rainbow which showed me God's love and his promises. And then it was just a few days later we got this diagnosis. Um, and really, all you can do with this particular condition is sit back and watch and see what happens. And that's what we did. And at 23 weeks in the pregnancy, um, our consultant had gone on holiday. Um, this was around about Christmas time and we were seen by somebody else who was an extremely cautious lady um, very nice, very friendly, very knowledgeable but very cautious and at that point um, the blood flow they, they would monitor the blood flow going down the umbilical cord to Sophie and a normal blood flow you will get um, the peak as the, it gets pumped and then you'll get the trough and a peak and a trough um, and at the, the trough, the blood will still keep flowing forwards. But for Sophie, it would stop because there was that much resistance. You'd get this pulse and then the blood would sit still and then a pulse and it would sit still. And what you really didn't want was for it to then start heading back towards the baby. That's when you need to deliver them. Um, and we'd been told you want to try and get to 28 weeks if you can. If you can get to 28 weeks, then statistically babies have got a much better chance of survival. Um, we won't let you go beyond 32 so we had this window we were aiming for. If things get very serious, they can do this laser surgery um, in London where they, they go in and they use a laser to fuse off the blood vessels that connect the two babies. Now, what that would do is it would mean that if the small one died, the big one wouldn't die with her. Um, so at 23 weeks... We went to see this consultant and some of the fluid of surrounding the babies was of a slightly different level. And it wasn't bad enough for it to be considered this other complication, which we were also hoping didn't happen. But it was sort of approaching it a little bit. And she said, well, if you want, you can go down to London, to King's College Hospital, and you can be assessed there. Um, and I thought, well, it'd be quite irresponsible as a parent, not to go and see the, the top experts in the country, wouldn't it? So we went down there, um, and we went on the 23rd of December, so two days before Christmas. We actually went on our way to my parents for our Christmas break, and we saw this lady who had quite a different approach to the consultant we'd been seeing. We felt quite safe with our consultant. She was, although she was serious, we knew that... Um, she was looking after us and she didn't ever try and spook us. Um, just gave us the facts as they were and was nice. And we saw this other lady who seemed to want to... I mean, the fluid levels had adjusted by then, but obviously we still had this other complication. 
she seemed to want to push us into having this laser surgery. And she laid out all these statistics in front of us, which were far more severe than we'd been told at that point, and made it sound to us like we had no choice but to have this done. Um, and I said to her, but look, if we do that, doesn't that make her chances less? And she said no. And I wasn't prepared to do that then and there. I thought, no, you know, I, we had this consent form in front of us, and I thought, no, I would, I would sooner sit on my hands and have myself go anywhere near that pen. Um, and she said, well, after a while, she sort of relented and said, well, look, we can at least say with what we've seen today that because this is a predictable progression with what you have rather than something unpredictable, um, she won't die in the next week, so why don't you take a week to go and think about it and then come back? Now, that week um, was Christmas week, <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest Christmas. We, I read more medical journals and studies than you can find. And to be honest, it's really hard to come across information when it's only three in a thousand births are identical twins, or this type of ones where they share the placenta. And then only 10% of those have this particular condition that we had. Um, so finding studies with lots of information is really hard. But what I did find was evidence that suggested that if we chose to have that laser surgery and cut off those shared blood vessels, then actually it would make Sophie's chances of survival less. Because all the while she was struggling, Charlotte was sending blood over to her. And provided that didn't get messed up and the balance wasn't out, then actually she had a better chance if we didn't sort of sever that off. But there's a cutoff for this surgery of 26 weeks. They can't do it after that point. And there's a window there of two weeks, 26 to 28, where if you have to give birth, it's very, very risky. So we, we prayed a lot. Um, we read a lot and cried a lot and decided that there was no way we could intervene and potentially make things more difficult for her. The whole situation felt like you were having to choose which baby you wanted to save, which one you wanted to protect. Um, and we felt that it was right that we didn't go down this particular path of the surgery. Now, I didn't really fancy going back to London and facing this lady again and telling her that. <laughs> so I, I rung up um, the day before. I rung up our consultant because I knew it was her first day back, <laughs> poor woman, um, begging her to see us. And um, she said, come in tomorrow morning before you go to London. And if you don't need to go, then I'll just tell you you don't need to go and I'll tell them for you. Um, and we took a long list of questions and she spent well over an hour answering them, which I think is pretty unusual to have someone give you that amount of time. Um, so, yeah, the long and short, we did not have the surgery. We stuck it out. At 30 weeks, I was admitted into hospital, so they could monitor them three times a day. With They monitor the heart traces to make sure they're not in distress. And I sat there indefinitely not knowing how long I was in there, but knowing there was no way I was coming out still pregnant. Um, and we made it to 32 weeks, which felt like a, a real miracle. It really did. We, know we, had, we lived from one scan to another, wanting to know what those blood readings were, wanting to know whether um, the blood flow was still sort of absent at the end, which you know it had been for quite a while, or whether it was getting worse. 
um, and they measure other things as well to check how the baby's coping with the situation it finds itself in. Um, and at 32 weeks, they said, right, this is it. Now we, we've hit where we're going to get to. We want to deliver these babies. And what we need is two spaces in the neonatal unit. And so the, at 32 weeks exactly, I was on the kind of waiting for a section. Um, it was too dangerous to give birth naturally. Um, she wouldn't have made it at all if we'd done that. Because her cord wasn't actually attached to the placenta. It was attached to the membrane about that far away. Um, so I wasn't allowed to eat anything on the morning. And then uh, you have this string of people coming to see you, which is quite nice because it's quite boring. Um, and you have an anaesthetist come and tell you what's going to happen. And then I had a neonatal consultant come and tell us what to expect from the babies. And I said to her, do you know what? This was the best we were ever going to hope for. So whatever you say, this is, you know, this is our best case scenario. And um, that day they didn't have spaces. They didn't have cots. So we had to wait another day. And then the following day they did have cots. And before you know it, you've been given a couple of hours warning before you're going to go off to the theatre and have them. And, and it all gets very, very real. Um, and they, they were born 25th of February. Sophie was two pounds and 12 ounces. Um, Charlotte was three pounds and 12. They were whisked straight off to the unit um, in incubators. I, someone brought Sophie to me while I was laying there and they were stitching me up or whatever they were doing. And I got to kiss her on the cheek. Um, that was all I got. And I knew that was, that, that was more than I expected to get, actually. Um, and they got whisked away. And I was just happy that they were no longer in that environment inside me where I didn't know if they were going to make it. They stayed in hospital for six and a half weeks, and we had a really up and down time in there as well. They had stomach infections, which are potentially fatal, but they got through it. They responded to all the different treatments and so on. Um, so as far as walking that out in faith, I'm not here to say that I did a very good job of it. Um, I'm not here to say that I got up every morning and declared the word of the Lord over it and prayed fervently and, you know, had absolute faith. I didn't. Um, I was scared quite a lot. And I cried quite a lot. Um, but I also knew that there wasn't really anything else I could do but to live it with God and to put my trust in the fact that he'd said I would come through the other side and I would see the rainbow and his promises um, you don't have to be some big faith warrior to see a victory you just have to be able to put one step in front of the other whilst holding God's hand and that was what I felt I did People kept coming and saying, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're such a strong lady. And I thought, I don't, I don't know that I am. I don't have a choice but to walk this path that we've suddenly found ourselves on. I don't have a, an exit point, um, not one that I like the look of anyway, other than to just keep going and trust that God will sort things out somehow. Um, and he did. <laughs> I also 
I'd like to say that sometimes when you have traveled through something like that that takes its toll on you a bit, you don't come out the other side completely um, perfect from it. You don't come out kind of bouncing and going, yeah, you know, God saw us through and all of that. Actually, I'm, you know, I came out of it quite tired and feeling a bit broken and with a lot of questions. But we all came out of it well and healthy. And as we work through it, um, God starts to put those things together. The bits that were broken in the process, he puts those bits together as well. And, it, you know, we're a bit impatient sometimes, aren't we? We want to just go down to the front, be prayed for, and then everything is, is good again. But actually, he, he wants to walk it out with you. And just one small, sorry, I know I've gone on for a long time, um, but your 10 minutes before you invited me up was quite a long 10 minutes. <laughs> So, <laughs> um, one of the things that God showed me subsequently after they've come home and after they, you know, they're well again and their 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 new consultant is so happy with them. Um, Charlotte, bless her, uh, is a little bit on the impatient side with wanting her bottle, and <laughs> she's she doesn't have a whole lot of grace for me if I am in her eyes a bit late. Um, and she can get herself very, very wound up, like really, really wound up and quite distraught. And then by the time you get the bottle to her and you put it in her mouth, she's so intently crying that she, she can't actually bring herself to take the thing that she wants. And it really gets quite frustrating, especially if you're trying to feed two at once and you've only got this one hand to try and deal with her and she's there just bawling and bawling and letting the milk flow all over her face and, and so on. And I was getting quite frustrated and, and I felt like God... Well, I felt for a while, I was like, I'm sure there's a lesson in this somewhere. (laughs) And then I realized there was, there was quite a lesson for me, actually, that you can spend so long getting upset about the fact that you didn't get the thing that you wanted in the time you wanted it, that when it does arrive, you're still crying about the fact you didn't get it earlier on. Um, Yeah, so... No. <laughs> About when you go through something, you come out the other side and doing it with... Oh, is it on? Oh, it can on. never work, Sorry, this. It's on. Okay. The, when you come through something, it just changes you. And you see, even though it might have been hard and you might not... It might not have gone the way you wanted it to, but you can see God in it. And you do have questions. And But when you come through it, you are changed. And with your eyes on him... It's it, you're in a better place, and just listening to Sarah, then, you know that's family as well. You know, Sarah, that was amazing. Just to share all of that, what you went through, and you know, it wasn't easy. And uh, um, but just you came through it, and you are changed. And God will do and show you, like the milk situation, He'll show you bit on bit on bit, and. You'll never go back and say, oh, well, that was okay, because it really wasn't okay what you went through, and we watched how hard that was. But God is within you, and there will be something amazing that he'll show you, and you will be forever changed and stronger because of it. And also as a family, you know, when, you know, when you, 
one of your family members goes through something like that and you come alongside, we go through and we come out stronger. You know, something happens, God in the midst of it all, God does something and you become this strong family unit and the enemy, it's like no enemy. You're not having us. You're not having us individually and you're not having us as a family and we're going to do life together and we're going to come through it together and which is an awesome thing and then you get his heart you get his heart yeah i actually particularly want to say thank you to this family as a whole um we felt very supported and loved and i know i got a bit cranky particularly towards the end of the people um but we really did feel very loved and one of the real markers of that is in the six and a half weeks that we spent every single day at the hospital with the babies um we didn't really need to sort out our own meals once because people provided us with frozen meals that we could just put in the microwave there so that we were able to go and spend all that time and not have to think about it. And these lovely people here gave us a, a roof over our heads that was just up the road. Because one of the hardest things I found was when I got discharged and we had to drive half an hour away and leave them in the hospital. So at least to be just a stone's throw away, it made a huge difference. And it gave us family around us you know in the mornings and the evenings rather than going back to our own house on our own um and quite honestly i just don't really know how the world deals with life without having god and a church around them This is what God's word says. Therefore, put on the complete armor of God so that you will be able to successfully resist and stand your ground in the evil day of danger. Having done everything that you can do that the crisis demands, just stand firm. There's... A thing, simple thing that when we walk in faith that happens or helps. You see, we're all at different stages and and kind of compared to Jesus, generally we're a long way off. But when you can't stand in faith yourself because the crisis looks too big for you, you can stand in faith as a family. And you can stand in faith for each other. You can piggyback on other people's faith. And so one of the things that uh, I, I thought was remarkable about the way Rob and Sarah walked this is that the prayer group on WhatsApp was live all the time. They involved so many people in it in terms of praying, keeping people informed. And it felt like, we'd all walked it together yeah. and that's really important you know because a real big thing about growing in faith and growing and understanding more about God's love for us is when we don't feel like it and we can't stand then get others to stand for us and when you're a family you can do that yeah. you see God gives us 
weapons to fight with. Um, and, you know, I, I could do the whole Ephesians thing, put on the arm of God. I'm not going to do that. I'll leave that for another day now. But we have certain weapons. Jesus used the weapon of the word to speak back, to speak truth into the situation. And, and one of the things that happened with Sarah is that, that people would put on the WhatsApp group words that they had from God and words of scripture to encourage her and Rob. And that's important. But we also would speak back to the enemy and tell him that he's not having these kids. Yeah. And that although the doctor's report was what it says, it wasn't the end of the story. Yeah. You see, when we're in a fight, we've got to use the things that we've been given to use. We can't leave them on a shelf. And as a body, as a church family, we can't leave them on the shelf because otherwise the enemy steals. See, one of the things that, that God's word tells us about something is that you don't overcome evil by evil things yourself. You know... Um, That's why we don't fight Satan in the way he wants us to fight him. We fight him with the opposite. You know, in Romans 12, it says, don't be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. Yeah. You don't fight back on the same terms. You know, if somebody's messing with your life, and, and you know, I said last week that you don't let people's own bad choices determine your destiny. <laughs> People make bad choices. People treat you badly or can treat you badly, but you don't have to let that ruin your life and steal from your life. But neither do you have to respond from anger or offence or bitterness. You overcome evil with good. So if somebody's been mean to you, what do you do? You pray for them. You bless them. If somebody's uh, really messing with your life, what do you do? If somebody's, uh, well, if somebody's on the take, you know what I mean by on the take? Is that, that's a northern thing, in that they take, 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 and there's no give back. Because that, that, that's where they are. What do you do? You keep giving. You bless them. You're kind. When somebody's mean, you're kind. When they're hurtful towards you, you pray for them. Not natural responses from our flesh, but responses from our spirit. And we can because we're born again. We can respond from our spirit and not from our flesh. So we overcome evil with good. But the third lesson I want to, third weapon I want to focus on and, and, and finish with, and, and we're going to finish with another testimony. I don't think it's quite as long. <laughs> but you never know if Shell gets up, you know. <laughs> Is this, that one of the biggest Next to the word, the biggest weapon we have as believers is praise. Praise or thanksgiving. And by praise, I, you know, we, we automatically go, well, that's a fast song. No, praise isn't a fast song. That, that's part of praise, and that's great and fun and exciting. But what praise is, is a narrative that tells of God's goodness. Praise is a narrative that tells of God's goodness. And so, it's not just singing. 
It's not just shouting out in a prayer meeting. Praise, and this is a, this is a bloke's thing, you know. Joyce Meyer can do the girl in, in uh, illustration. I can do the bloke's thing. So praise for a bloke is going down the pub with his mates, and instead of sitting there complaining and moaning and going over all that's wrong at work and all that's wrong with his wife and all that's wrong with his kids and all that's wrong with his football team, you sit there and you think about something and you think of a good story to tell on God, to tell what God's doing in your life or what God's doing in somebody else's life. That's praise, telling good stories about God. And it's also a weapon that we have. It's a weapon that denies the enemies right, the enemy rights in our life. You see, what the enemy wants us to do is rehearse and go over and over and over again what is wrong with our life. See, the Word of God, when it talks about praise, says something really important. It says, magnify the Lord, O my soul. Magnify the Lord. What does that mean? It says, make big God. And instead, what we've got kind of, in, in, in our natural world, we make big our problem. We make big what's wrong and we sit there, we complain, we moan, we gripe we, and, and we make God small and the problem big. And that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to make the problems big and God small. And in God's word says, magnify God and make the problems small. So praise is a really powerful weapon. It is something that, you know, when, when we talk about putting on the armour of God, you have to do that on purpose. It doesn't come natural when you're not in a naturally good situation. Place comes really naturally when everything's going swimmingly. It doesn't come naturally when you're sat in front of a consultant or you could lose your job or something's going wrong. It doesn't come natural. But what, what our weapon is there is to magnify God. To magnify God and make the problem small. So praise is choosing to tell good stories about God. To make him big instead of just sitting there and rehearsing the problem over and over again and making it bigger and getting it there right in front of your face so you can't see God. And I want to finish this morning with, with the, a testimony. A testimony like Sarah's that took a year to work out. It took one David's tent to the next David's tent to work out. So it's a brand, it, it's like, just come to its conclusion two weeks ago. Nicola. Hey. Um, yeah, so I've just come back from David's tent. And before I went, I was having a bit of a stock take about what had happened in the year before I went, because I went last year and then I went again this year. For those of you who don't know, it's a 72-hour worship conference. And last year I had quite a a really good encounter with God there and I wanted to make sure that when I went this year I was like well what God what are you trying to prepare for me this time what are you going to say to me um and I'll backtrack just a little bit before I start so some of you might know um for a number of years I've been doing some exams for um my job um to become tax a chartered tax advisor and I would love to <laughs> This isn't a test me where I'm going to say to you, and God got me through my exams. I'm now a chartered tax advisor because I'm not, okay? <laughs> and I will get there in a minute. <laughs> um, so about two years ago, I was doing these exams, and at the, the six exams, I passed all of them apart from the last two. Um, so I'd failed them in the November. So I was sitting them again last May, a year ago. 
Um, and just as we were doing them, I wasn't feeling very filled with confidence because it was two exams, they were really difficult, they were not my normal um, line of work at all, um, and I'd already failed them once, so I wasn't particularly feeling particularly confident about them at all. And at the time, um, Phil brought a new song in that we started doing in church, um, which most of you probably know is King of My Heart, and it's got this really amazing chorus, or bridge bit, that's like, you are good, good, oh... You are good. Oh, I want to sing. You know I can sing. Um, <laughs> and when he started playing that, we started doing it. We, we listened to it on YouTube, and I, I listened to it a lot while I was doing those exams. Because in that moment, I did not feel good um, at all. And I was really singing this song going, well, God is good, so this exam is going to go really well. And I got this really big place with God that was actually... I immersed myself in that song. I got it so deep inside of me that I was like, this is good, God is good, God is good, to the point where I got to a place where I was like, even if the exam goes terrible, God is still good. And I had this like real confidence. So I went to the exam, I felt really good. I did them both, thought I'd nailed them, passed one, failed the other. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh, well, I thought God was going to sort this out for me. And then I kind of like had this thing, but I was like, but God, it's still good. And I wasn't going to let that rob me. And I think I'd put it deep enough inside me during the preparation time that I wasn't going to let that rob me. Um, so when I was at David's tent last year, we were singing that song. And I was in a real place of turmoil because I was like, I've got to do it again. And I hate tax. I don't even want to work in tax. This isn't even what I want to do. Like, why am I putting so much effort into this? Um, and I was just in a real bad place in terms of like... I trust you, I know this was a thing, I, I had your word that it was going to go good, um, it's, in man's eyes it's gone half good, um, so, so what, what, what's the good you're bringing out of this? And I was really seeking God for that, so last year when I was there I had this real word about stepping out in faith and not being afraid, and I was like, well I'm, I'm not sure what I'm afraid about, <laughs> but the whole theme was about do not be, do not be afraid, God's with you, um, don't be a slave to fear, all that kind of thing, and that was like the residing word I got, and Having failed the exam, I started reassessing what I actually want to do with my life a bit, which is questions I never would have raised if I'd have passed them both, to be honest. If I'd have passed them both, I'd be like, yeah, career in tax forever, um, which is not what I want at all. So I really felt to step out in faith this year and to start trying to plant a small business alongside my, my job in a creative field, because obviously, for those of you who know me, I am not an accountant, I am creative at heart. Um, that's who I am, it's who I am through my core, it's what I've studied, it's what I've always wanted to do. I make cakes and I do sewing. So I really wanted to um, venture out into the sewing world. And the, for me, that's like a huge, um, big deal. I don't have business experience, I don't know anything. Um, and also, I'm, I don't know how to sew curtains and squares. So like dressmaking is interesting, because it's a square. It has to be a square. So um, this year, I've, I've really tried to put some legs on um, stepping out in faith a bit and um, expanding my sewing repertoire, and I've made lots of stuff. But I'm sitting there preparing for David's turn this year going, oh, what really changed? Because I didn't actually go and do that. I didn't go and do all that stuff. And I start to ask God, well, what was different this year? And so the upshot was I resat the exam again in November, and I got my result in January, and I failed it again. And I sat there in January, and I was like, right, well... I've got three options, I can, well, two options. I can retake it again. It's really expensive. What difference does this qualification actually make? And I had to really have this kind of like moment of going, well, I want to start the business. This is, doing these revisions is stopping me doing all this sewing that I want to do, stopping me doing everything else that I want to do. I'm, and, you know, I don't want to commit more time to this. So I kind of weighed up. It's like the difference this qualification will make is 
My clients have no idea that I've got it or not. Um, it doesn't make any difference to them. I'm already doing the job it enables me to do. My work's quite good in that they're like, you're, you're capable of doing the job even without the qualification, so we were giving you the thing. We were already, so I was already doing the role I would have got promoted into. Literally, the only thing it was going to affect was my pay. And I was like, right, well, it's about four or five grand pay rise if I get this qualification or not. So I was like, that's quite a significant thing. But I'm not driven by money. I don't want to work in tax forever. Do you know what? God, I'm going to leave the money in your hands. I'm not going to retake this exam. I'm going to ditch this qualification. Um, I've learned a lot. I've done it three times. I'm not doing it anymore. So I went into my boss and I was like, I'm not going to do this exam again. And she said, well, before you make your decision, I just want you to know, we're going to put your pay to. And it was the number I had in my head that the pay would have gone to if I passed the exam and finished the qualifications. I was just like, gosh, you're really amazing. <laughs> because I don't know where that faith came from to believe that God would give me a pay rise even if I didn't, I didn't believe that. That was like... But it was like God's seal of approval like and stamp of approval going, you don't need to be afraid. I'm going to provide for you. Um, and it was a real like, driving through fear thing. And I was just like, wow, I've really trusted God there. And I, I didn't expect that. I was expecting to sit at the same level for a long time. So I was really ama like, amazed. So this year when I was reviewing what had kind of happened in the year, um, there was one moment when we were in David's tent this year, and we were singing King of My Heart. And as soon as we started singing the song, I burst into tears. And I was like, whoa, didn't see that coming. And God really spoke to me. He said, when you sang this song here last year, you are good, good. Oh, you were singing that as a faith statement. This year, you're singing it as a declaration because you've seen the goodness of God. Like, I spent a year, you know, walking through what Sarah walked through and as a family and Every, everything that had happened that year, the, the termination with my exams, I've had a year where someone at work has been bullying me as well. And, you know, I haven't been afraid. God is good. I've seen the goodness of God in the last year. And I was really like, I was like, yes, you're good, good. <laughs> and I just, I sang it with a different thing. And as soon as I'm, I'd had that word from God, the lady at the front of the stage said, some people, I just feel like when they sing this song, they're singing it as a faith statement. But for sometimes you can stand the other side and see the goodness of God. It's like, yes, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> and I was like, exactly what I just said. And then a few, um, a few worship sets later, another person was doing... Um, no longer slaves to fear. And uh, as that song came on, God said, this is another one. You sang this last year. As I'm no longer a slave to fear. Really? I'm afraid. But I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm going to declare it and I'm going to put it in me and I'm going to sing it until I mean it, until I mean it. And I'm going to sing it through the tough times that we've seen this year where we've believed that, you know, I'm afraid I can't do this exam. I'm afraid my friend's going to lose her baby. I'm afraid that my work situation is going to fall apart. I'm afraid I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to get married. But you know what? I'm not a slave to fear. And now I can stand and I can sing that, that I've gone through the other side. And I really believe that God has built a confidence in me this year that I can stand and trust him and walk with him. And he is good. So I really want to, like, sorry, I really want to encourage people. If you haven't seen it yet, sing it until you see it. Sing it until you mean it. Like, I'm not a slave to fear. Sing it while you're afraid. Sing it while you don't know where things are going because God is good and it's like a declaration to sing out. The issue about going through things is when you're the wrong side of them, it never looks good. But God always looks good. He's anointed you for it to go through it. And 
He'll take you through it. The outcome may not be what you expected. It might be a lot better than you expected. But when you've done everything that you know to do, you stand. What's that mean? It means trust God, do good, help people. That's our response to everything because that's the opposite of what the enemy would want. 